Exodus chapter 12, titling the message, Set Free at Last. Let's just unite our heart in a short word of prayer. Lord, we do thank Thee again for Thy presence. We thank the Lord that we're about the Master's business. And, oh God, how it is a blessing to be busy in the Lord's work. And we pray, Lord, as a congregation that we might even embrace the busyness in the work of God in the next number of weeks. Lord, that thou would give us that resolve to go through with God. And thou would give a ready heart to serve. Lord, that thou would come and bless us. We look to thee now, Lord, as we, Lord, come to this passage. Give us understanding. Teach us, Lord. Oh, we thank thee for what you have been to us already in this study. But Lord, again, we need thee today. We pray thy spirit will be poured out upon us. Spirit of the Lord, be our teacher this morning. I pray that thou would fill me with thy spirit and with power. Give me words that must and shall prevail. We ask in Jesus' precious name. Amen. What lessons we already have learned from this pivotal chapter of Exodus chapter 12. We have learned, of course, that Israel were as guilty as the Egyptians for sinning against the Lord. It wasn't merely, and maybe we get this in our mind, that the Lord was only passing over the Egyptian homes, but he was passing over all the homes. And that's why he said, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. Israel were just as guilty as the Egyptians. And you might remember Joshua, as he came to the end of his life, Joshua chapter 24, that he gives him a little review And there's the exhortation as to what they were going to do going forward. He reminds them of their idolatry in the land of the Chaldeans. And so he gives the exhortation for them to choose whom they would serve. Would they choose the gods of your fathers the other side of the river? Or will you choose the gods of the Amorites in the land in which you dwell? He goes on to say, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Remember it? Well, that just reminds us, men and women, although Israel weren't the Egyptians, yet they still were guilty of idol worship and they needed to be delivered. And that deliverance came only through the shedding of the blood. There had to be the substitute that would die in the place of the firstborn and with a lamb taken from the flock and inspected and slain, its blood shed. That blood had to be applied to the homes where they were sheltering from the promised death angel that was coming. Let me give you a little illustration. There's a church in Germany that is uh, found to have a small memorial of a lamb upon it. The story is told how that came about. The construction team, as they were on that steep roof, It happened so that one of the men suddenly fell from it. And the other men presumed that he was dead and they clambered down, but they found the man, yes, dazed, but he was standing by the church. How that came about was in his fall at that particular moment in time. A lamb that was grazing below happened to come underneath his fall. It broke the man's fall. The lamb died. The man was spared. And in gratitude for that lamb, he made a stone image. And he put it on the building of that church. And men and women, when we fell in Adam in the Garden of Eden, it looked like it would be a fall to our eternal death. But bless God, there was the Lamb. 
ordained from eternity past, from the foundation of the world who came and those who have fallen on the Lamb, those who are depending upon His sacrifice as our substitute and His blood shedding are those who live all because of Him, because He died. Is He your substitute? Another lesson is that salvation we have learned through Exodus 12 is only through faith. We read Hebrews chapter 11 and the words of verse 28, a great chapter of faith, as you know. Verse 28 brings us to this time. It says, through faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, lest he that destroyed the firstborn should touch them by faith. Looking at it rationally, the blood sprinkled of the homes didn't make any sense. There's no link between that and being saved from the death angel. But they had to do it because it was what God had commanded. They may not have fully understood the significance or indeed the foreshadowing of the Lord Jesus of whom we see uh, throughout this chapter, in fact all our chapters as well, but they had to believe that it was God's word revealing to them how they would be spared from the coming judgment. And by faith they kept the Passover. By faith they slew that lamb and they applied its blood. They had to act. If every firstborn in those Jewish homes were to be saved from the death angel. And so it is in the gospel. Salvation by faith in the Lord Jesus. It may sound and it does sound foolish to many people. Saved from our sins and with the assurance of being in heaven because of one who hung on a cross over 2,000 years ago. Yet God has revealed that salvation is through Christ alone. It's in that finished work on that tree. And if we believe that he is our sinless substitute and in his atoning death, then we're spared, we're saved. If we don't, we perish. If we're saved, the judgment passes over us. If we're not the judgment faces us. Men and women, I want you to see this morning how Israel were to be set free by that Passover lamb. Firstly, you'll notice the death of the firstborn. If you cast your mind back to the very first message, indeed I'll take you back to it, uh, Exodus chapter 4. The very first message that God commanded Moses to deliver to Pharaoh, you'll find that it was a warning. Exodus chapter 4, look at verse 22. Thus, and thou, and thou shalt say unto Pharaoh, Thus saith the Lord. There's the first time you'll see that. Israel is my son, even my firstborn. And I say unto thee, Let my son go, that he may serve me. And if thou refuse to let him go, behold, I will slay thy son, even thy firstborn. you notice there, God likens Israel to his firstborn son. And if Pharaoh refused to let them go, then the warning was that the firstborn of Pharaoh and by inference a nation, they will be killed. The warning's given there in the very first message that Moses was to deliver to Pharaoh. 
And of course, it's evident from what follows that Pharaoh didn't believe that warning. Just like so many sinners today do not believe in the reality of a judgment seat, they do not believe in the reality of a day of accountability when they'll stand before God who will judge their sin, who will condemn the lost sinner to a lake of fire. Remember what the Lord said, Except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. But the vast majority do not believe that God means what he says. Understand this, men and women, young people, that while men's words often can be empty words, and we see it all the time, whether it's in the business, whether it's in the shop, wherever it is, whether it's in places of government, we'll see a new prime minister come in of all the promises. You know, some of those promises mean nothing. They'll just be empty words. But God doesn't operate like that. For God is one who's faithful and he cannot lie. Yes, he is patient. Yes, he is long-suffering. And he shows that many times throughout the scriptures. But even those things, those attributes have their limit. And so it is proved with Pharaoh and with this nation. He had received warning after warning. He had uh, given appeal after appeal. He had even noticed had given, uh, been given lesser judgments. But Pharaoh was heedless and he hardened his heart. And you now look at verse 29 and you'll see the judgment warned of has now come to pass. And it came to pass that at midnight the Lord smote all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. You see, the Lord's words are not empty promises. Whether in grace or in wrath, they're not empty. He keeps his word. Note the details of these deaths. The tenth plague is the, in the, death, is the death of both firstborn, both of man and of beast. No family was exempt. Rich nor poor. High nor low, lofty nor lowly, prince or pauper. You see, verse 30, it tells us at the end of it, not a house where there was not one dead. It wasn't a house. You just think how much of a loss that was to the Egyptians. You see, the eldest son was the next in line. And the eldest son, the firstborn, always held a great hope that the pastoral would continue on. And therefore, the, no greater blow could have been set upon the land than to take the firstborn out of every home. It truly was the worst of all the plagues and one that caused devastation. But also consider how it matched their own sin. Pharaoh had refused to let God's firstborn go and now God puts his finger upon the firstborn of Pharaoh and his people. It's a judgment that matches the offense and the sin of the nation. Don't forget, they caused the death of many of the Israelites through the slavery over those years. And also, don't forget that they drowned the baby boys that were born to Israel. And now God punishes Egypt in the death of their firstborn. It's reaping what is sown and a punishment that matches the sin not only hurts the sinner where he has hurt others, but it also helps him to see why he is suffering the judgment for it points to the sin that is being judged. The death of the firstborn. There was a despair and pain that resulted. I want to read verse 30 to you. Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt. For there's not a house where there was not one dead. Unlike the other plagues again, there was a forewarning about this sorrow. You just turn back to the previous chapter 11. 
And the words of verse 6 read this, And there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there was none like it, nor shall be like it any more. There's the, me- there's the last message that Moses delivered to Pharaoh. Pharaoh, if you don't obey the command of the Lord, there's going to be a great cry right throughout Egypt. It gave Pharaoh the opportunity to obey the command of the Lord even in the 11th hour. But he ignored the exhortation. Can we not say that God also has given warning after warning after warning about the greatest sorrow that will come upon the Christ rejecter for the terrors of hell are revealed to us time and time and time again right throughout the scriptures. The words of verse 30 tell us that there was a great cry. The forewarning had now come to pass and it was reality. It was sorrow that had never been experienced before nor after. That's what the warning told there in chapter 11, verse 6. Egypt was touched where it would hurt the most, the death of their firstborn. And it seems to be added to when you consider it happened at midnight. Tragedies in the darkness only seem to amplify the pain. What about, what about an eternity that is described as outer darkness? What about an eternity, men and women, that is described by Jude as the blackness of darkness forever? Our, our minds, I, I, I confess, I can't take in what that fully means. I can't know what that looks like. The blackness of darkness forever. And God has given those warnings. But praise God, there is an escape from the greatest of all cries and sorrows. And it is by way of the cross, it's by way of the atoning sacrifice that Christ offered for sinful and for lost mankind. The sinner can know deliverance from an awful eternity of endless suffering and sorrow. The same way that Israel were to know it on the night of the Passover. And it's through the blood of the Lamb. What a chapter. What a chapter. It really gives us all the gospel. There's the death of the firstborn. And men and women, if you haven't made preparation, I trust, young person, that you will, even this morning, that you will make preparation that you'll never have to die the second death in that lost eternity in the blackness of darkness forever. And you'll turn to Christ. But we move on because I want you to see the deliverance here of Israel. Freedom for Israel was now within their grasp. The strong grip of Pharaoh and the Egyptians had been broken by the sound of the wailing in the middle of the night in every home. And so understand that deliverance for Israel was demanded. It was demanded. The last chapters we've been looking at it through those plagues that God was requiring, God was commanding that his people be let go. But now it's demanded by Pharaoh, no less. For notice the words of verse 31. It says in verse 31, And he called, that is Pharaoh, for Moses and Aaron by night, and said, Rise up, get up forth from among my people, both ye and the children of Israel, and go serve the Lord as ye have said. And even the children of Israel, sorry, the people of Egypt, they also add the same to it. Verse 33, The Egyptians were urgent upon the people that they might send them out of the land in haste. 
The tenth plague had aroused Pharaoh to action as nothing had before. It caused him to do what previously he had stubbornly refused to do, that is, to let Israel go. Pharaoh not only allowed them to leave, he's demanding it. And so the reason why we read in verse 39 that Israel, do you see that, were thrust out of Egypt. Were thrust out of Egypt. I want you to just underline that word thrust. It gives the idea of being cast out, of being expelled. In fact, it's the same word as when you'll find God drove out our first parents from the Garden of Eden. You know that at the end of uh, chapter 3 of Genesis. They were driven out. It's the same word, they were thrust out. You see, there's separation. There's a divorce, if you like, from Pharaoh here and the Israelites. He thrust them out. He drove them out. It's demanded by him. And the interesting thing to note is that this wasn't something surprising. Indeed, it is what God had already said Pharaoh would do when he spoke with Moses before any of the plagues. Exodus 6 verse 1. Then the Lord said unto Moses, Now shalt thou see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand shall he let them go, and with a strong hand shall he drive them out of his land. Now, when Moses heard that, I'm sure he was taken back. I'm sure he thought uh, that that was incredible, for he knew Pharaoh to be obstinate and stubborn already. And he might have thought, Here's something that's impossible. Oh, just, just like we do sometimes. Maybe some of God's promises to your heart have had the same response. It's impossible. Maybe the same could be said when we see some of the evil iniquitous bills overturned in our nation or some other nation and we think it can never happen. And we're rebuked for our unbelief. It's one thing to be forced to give up Israel. It's quite another thing to drive them out of the very land. You see, men and women, if this underlines anything to us, it is that God is in control. He is all-powerful. He can do what no other can do. Indeed, it is God who so orders things that will not only see His will permitted, but even brought into being. And that's what happened with Esther. You remember Esther before the king Ahasuerus and there was a threat upon her life that she went unannounced and so forth and you know the story and it so happened that Haman, the great enemy of Israel, was hanged on his own gallows that Israel, the nation, might be preserved. And the same happened at Calvary where the enemy of God thought that they were doing their worst against Christ, yet they were but instruments in God's hand to the fulfilling of the plan and purpose of God in redemption. And you know, Peter brings it out in the great day of Pentecost, and we've read it oftentimes, Acts chapter 2, verse 22. He's preaching, he's standing forth, and he says, Ye men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know. Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken 
and by wicked hands have crucified and slain, whom God hath raised up. Oh, you, you have taken the wicked hands, have taken the Christ of God. But I want to remind you, it was but fulfilling the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God from eternity past. It was fulfilling God's will. And he could not see corruption. God raised him up. Take encouragement, believer. The same Lord is still in control today. Hasn't changed. Note also the details about this deliverance. It's quite amazing, you know, when we closely look at what Pharaoh said. Look at verse uh, 31 and 32 again. A little phrase here. He called for Moses and Aaron by night and said, Rise up and get you forth from among thy people, both ye and the children of Israel, and go and serve the Lord as ye have said. Also take your flocks and your herds as ye have said. Twice over he says that, as ye have said. Pharaoh was in total compliance now with what Moses had requested and God through Moses. There's no compromises anymore. There's no bargaining chips anymore. He included all of the Israelites. Verse 31. Rise up and get you forth from among my people, both ye and the children of Israel. You remember how he tried to stop the children going? There's none of that now. All of Israel are to go. The children are no longer excluded to stay behind. There's no resistance or restriction in the distance to which they were to go. And the flocks and the herds, remember he tried to keep them back. Verse 32, they were also to go, as you have said. Pharaoh complies to every demand that the Lord had put upon him. But the sad thing is this, he did it too late. He did it too late for the blessing. You see, men and women, delayed obedience comes at a cost. Some believers have known chastisement because they have put off serving the Lord when they were called to. Delayed obedience comes at a cost. And Pharaoh's too late. You see, the duplication in this deliverance for what was now the mind of Pharaoh as I said and referenced earlier was also the mind of the Egyptian verse 33 the Egyptians were urgent upon the people that they might send them out of the land in haste for they said we be all dead men and you will notice two words there in the italics you can take it out we are all dead they'd seen the firstborn dead they thought now where the rest was going to be as well get out They were urging the people to leave. And again, it was something that Moses had told Pharaoh would happen before it did. Verse 8 of chapter 11. And all these thy servants shall come down unto thee and bow down themselves unto me, saying, Get thee out, and all the people that follow thee. And after that I will go out. Again, proving he was serving the true and living God that knows the end from the beginning. Pharaoh had previously the support of the Egyptians in their cruelty against Israel. Now the tables are turned. They duplicate the mind of Pharaoh to get rid of them, to persuade them to leave with great haste because they come to understand that Israel were were not to be enslaved. They were to be freed. I cannot conclude this particular thought or point without thinking of the feeble desire of Pharaoh. You'll see it at the end of verse 32. He says, and bless me also. 
He wanted the blessing, but he didn't want, he didn't like the conditions for that blessing. He's a bit like Esau. Esau wanted the blessing, but he despised the birthright. Men and women, so many are like it today. They want the blessing of God. They want to be in heaven, but they don't want to come God's way. They don't want to live in accordance to the word of God. Disobedience doesn't gain the blessing. Pharaoh was too late with, and bless me also. He had ample opportunity to obey God, to receive the blessing, but he resisted. And he stands still as an example not to follow. He hardened his heart. Let me show you finally the departure. Verse 34 reveals that people are engaged in preparing to leave in accordance to the word of Moses. The time of their departure was at hand. You might consider retribution in that departure. Look at verse 36. The Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so they lent unto them such things as they had required, and they spoiled the Egyptians. They spoiled the Egyptians. means that they took of their possessions, same way as would happen with a victorious army going in and taking the spoils off the enemy. They spoiled the Egyptians. Egypt lost their riches, but those riches were gained through the evil and forced labor of the Israelites. And now they were paying a bigger price than anything they'd ever gained. And that's how it is with unjust riches. Those who cheat and be dishonest in business to gain riches will turn out to curse them. The scripture says they fly away as an eagle toward heaven. Proverbs 16, in the words of verse 8, says this, Better is little with righteousness and great revenues without right. Better it is little with righteousness than great revenues without right. Know the trouble with our land. It's dishonest. It's dishonest in many ways in business. I came across that when I uh, was in the secular work before I went into Bible college. Never forget a wee man that came in with a bucket of damsons. I think I maybe even went for the damsons. He said there was whatever, 16 ounces and a pound and a stone, is that right? Well, when they were weighed out, it was nowhere near. Dishonest. They fly away as an eagle. Remember that. And the Egyptians now, they're spoiled. They've lost their riches. Because there is the retribution. There's also the recompense. Israel for these many years had been deprived of just wages as they had labored in slavery. But now the command from the Lord was that they were to ask of their neighbors jewels of silver and of gold and of garments. And they would be the means of recompensing. It would recompense them for their lack of pay and for the treatment that they had received from the hand of the, of the Egyptian. And you know, God had promised us. Because I even go back further. 
to Abraham. And Genesis 15, verse 14, just listen to this. He's saying about to Abraham, the nation will serve another nation for 400 years. And also that nation whom they shall serve will I judge. And afterwards shall they come out with great substance. God is telling Abraham what was going to happen. From his loins would come a great nation. That nation would be in a strange land. They would serve that nation for 400 years. But after that, I will bring them out with great substance. Because God would judge them. And now in Exodus 12, that promise is coming to pass. It's coming into reality. As with Israel, you know, so it is with God's people to this day. Often the remuneration is not in this life. The reward, the recognition may not be down here. But be assured, worker, that our reward is assured in heaven. Even a cup of cold water given uh, to a little one in the name of Christ shall not go unrewarded. Can I encourage you, the one who may not see much reward in their labor, maybe it's sitting in the Sunday school room, maybe it's among the children's work or the youth work, maybe it's in some other aspect to do with the, 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 the church here on the Tandergy Road or elsewhere, you might not see much reward, you might see not much riches or whatever you want to put it, whatever way you want to term it, but be encouraged. Continue to be faithful in serving the Lord, for in due time, recompense you will have. Recompense will be given for your labor. And the Lord always gives the best wages. We have that great promise in 1 Corinthians 15 and 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for ye know... For as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Israel were recompensed because the Lord had touched the hearts of the Egyptians. And there was a readiness among them for Israel to depart. Look at the words of verse 36. The Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they sent them, lent unto them such things as they required. Normally it would have been the very opposite. They would have utterly refused to help those strangers in their land. But now they give willingly. Now they give liberally. Because the Lord gave the people favor in His sight. That surely is an encouragement for us all. When the Lord gives a task, maybe humanly speaking it seems impossible. Remember, He also gives the grace. And He also gives the power to accomplish that task. And dear loved one of God can change the heart of the Egyptian then he can change the hardest heart that you're praying for. Consider, however, that in their departure, they had a responsibility. You see, in the words of verse 35, we see this. And the children of Israel did according to the word of Moses, and they borrowed, and I brought it out in a previous message. It means ask. They desired, they asked. It wasn't as, as we would use borrow. You borrow something, you bring it back again. Well, Israel weren't coming back. But it means ask. They were to ask of the Egyptians jewels of silver and jewels of gold and raiment. They had a responsibility to ask. If they didn't ask, they were going out empty-handed. God made the Egyptians receptive. That was his business. He touched their hearts. But the responsibility of Israel, they had to ask. And child of God, you're no different. We are exactly the same. 
Because the application to our hearts is, we have been bidden to ask. Ask and ye shall receive. Seek and ye shall find, knock, and it shall be opened unto you. Indeed, it's something that's commanded. Asking of the Lord is our responsibility. The promise that follows it, it shall be given unto you. That's from the Lord. That's His promise. But how many of God's people have not because they ask not? Think about it. I want you asking. I want you in the Thursday night prayer meeting. I want you asking for souls for these missions. I want you to ask for people to come into the house of God. I want you to ask for blessing on your own life. If you're not in the times of prayer on a Sunday morning, Sunday night, Thursday night, I start to question, are you praying at home? That's the way the preacher's mind works. And it's our responsibility. God has given us this great privilege. I've been able to come in prayer. I've been able to boldly come to the throne of grace. It's our responsibility to ask. And God has promised, it shall be given you. Or maybe there's people and they've said that, that, that they have asked, but they do not receive, they do not obtain. Maybe the reason is found with James. Remember, James says in chapter 4, verse 3, he says, Ye ask and receive not, because ye ask amiss, that ye may consume it upon your lusts. I apply this to my own heart as well as any before me today. May we be a people that are good in the department of asking. Asking of the Lord what he has told us to ask for in his word. No better than to ask for souls that are in bondage to their sin, held by many a snare, that they might be set gloriously free. Israel were set free at last. And we have neighbors and we have family, friends, and we have loved ones, and they need to be set gloriously free. Let's be a people who ask. May God give us the answer for even his glory's sake. Trust and pray the Lord will bless his word given to our hearts this morning.